Uh, have you ever come across the paradox of Theseus's ship? Um, Theseus was the, was the uh, mythical founder of Athens, and obviously he had a ship. And so this was an ancient kind of Greek thought experiment uh, that said if you took uh, Theseus's ship and you replaced one of the planks of wood in the ship, uh, well, of course, it would still be the same ship. But what if one by one you replaced every single plank of wood on the ship? Would it still be the same ship? Well, both yes and no. I mean, of course, on the one hand, it's still the same ship. At no point did it stop being Theseus's ship. And yet, actually, at the same time, it's a completely new ship, isn't it? Uh, and then just to make matters even more complicated, what if you took all of those planks of wood that you removed and put them all together and built another ship out of them? Well, which one is Theseus's ship? You know, in a funny sort of way, they both are. And it's a paradox. Um, now, of course, the modern um, counterpart to Theseus's ship is Trigger's Broom. Does anybody remember the Only Fools and Horses episode where uh, Trigger gets given a, uh, an award by the council for having had the same broom? He's looked after his broom for 20 years. And, uh, but, of course, in all that time, he says it's only ever had 17 new heads and 14 new handles. Um, to which the question is, well, how on earth can it be the same broom? Well, it's a paradox. It, in one sense, it, it is the same broom, but also, at the same time, it's a completely different broom. Well, the point of any paradox is when you've got two things that look like they shouldn't both be true, and yet they are. Um, it's not a contradiction. When two things contradict each other, well, they both can't be true. And I don't believe that the Christian faith has got any contradictions. And yet, the Christian faith is full of paradox. Things which, how can they both be true at the same time? And yet they are. And we're, say, we're spending, as I said, these three uh, weeks looking at Psalm 143 last week, 144 this week, and 145 next week. And these Psalms of King David are a model of not just what to pray, but how to pray. And you can see it's a prayer for deliverance. Have a look at it. You can see that it starts off in verse 1 and 2, praising God, the rock. Verse 2, he's the fortress, the stronghold, the deliverer, the shield. And there's a prayer. Verse 5, part the heavens, come down, scatter the enemy. Verse 7, deliver me and rescue me. And, uh, and then the blessings that come from when the, when the deliverance has taken place, verse 12. Then, once you've delivered us, Lord, our sons will be like well-nurtured plants. Our daughters will be like these wonderful pillars carved to adorn a palace. Our barns will be full. Our sheep will increase. Our city, verse 14, will be safe. There won't be any breaching of walls. Verse 15, blessed are the people of whom this is true. So it's a, it's a prayer. It's a song. Uh, for deliverance. Summed up, verse 9 and 10 in the middle, kind of a crucial, they sort of sum it up. I will sing to you, my God, on my ten-stringed guitar, I'll make music, to the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David. So, of course, we too should pray for deliverance, shouldn't we? And, and, and uh, well, Joe just now has just prayed for deliverance. There's plenty that we want God to deliver us from. But the interesting thing is that, actually, when we look at this prayer for deliverance, we see it is full of paradox. And actually, I think, actually, that's a good thing. You know, I think often people think, well, Christianity, oh, it's all about having neat answers for everything. 
And, well, sometimes there are nice, neat answers for things, but a lot of the time, actually, when you read the Bible, there's plenty of room for tension, and there's plenty of paradox, and often the answer is both and. But the key thing is not to run away from those paradox, but to lean in. And actually, often those two sides of the same coin... Oh, there goes a bauble. Often those two sides of the, of the coin, they're like two pedals of a bicycle. You actually need to push them both in order to move forward. And uh, last week we saw that we, we, we saw, if you were with us, there was a paradox all the way through Psalm 143. It taught us at the same time we need when we pray to be both incredibly humble and incredibly confident in approaching God. How can that both be true? And yet it is. Well, this morning we're getting three for one. And uh, there are three paradoxes in here I want us to see. I don't expect us probably to remember uh, all of these three, but perhaps there'll just be one in there that jumps out at us and think, wow, I've never really quite seen that. And actually, maybe if we lean into that paradox, it will enrich our prayer life. So this psalm teaches us we've got to pray to a God who is both transcendent and imminent It teaches us that we pray to him both individually and all together. And it teaches us that the answer to prayer, it it comes both now and not yet. So those are the three paradoxes. I say, I don't expect to sort of remember them all, but just see how they're all in here. Well, firstly, the God we pray to is both transcendent and he's imminent. He's both incredibly cosmically powerful and other and incomprehensible and vast and majestic and awesome. And he's wonderfully intimate and personal and present at the same time. So look at the language which David uses to describe. Verse one, he starts off, he says, praise be to the Lord, my rock. And the image is not some puny little pebble. The rock is the giant, vast, unmovable rock. On our honeymoon, Hannah and I, um, we went to visit the rock. Uh, We went to San Francisco. And there, jutting out into the middle of the San Francisco Bay, is um, a vast rock. And it's unmovable and formidable and imposing. And it's called Alcatraz, which is, I think, in Spanish means pelican, which is presumably the original occupants of this rock were pelicans. And I'd always wanted to visit because, as some of you may know, it used to be a, fort, it used to be a, a prison. And nobody ever escaped from uh, the rock except Clint Eastwood and Sean Connery. <laughs> um, now, you might not think a particularly romantic place to take my new bride, uh, maximum security prison. Um, and maybe that's right. But actually, it was an amazing place to visit. It was the most fascinating tour to go round the rock. And the tour guide explained to us that before it was a prison, it was a fortress. It was the most amazing natural fortress. And that is the picture here in verse 1 and 2, isn't it? Praise be to the Lord, my rock, verse 2. He's my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield. By comparison, what are we? Verse 3. Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you think of us. They're like a breath. Their days are like a fleeting shadow. We're so, so small compared to our great 
big God. And we know a lot more about this than King David did now, don't we, in the 21st century, thanks to the Hubble telescope. I mean, we can see the vastness of the universe, which God has breathed out the size of the stars and the planets. As the, what are we, by comparison? Stephen Hawking, famous scientist, he said, what are human beings? We're just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. Rather damning assessment, isn't it, of human beings? He says, I can't believe that the whole universe would exist just for our benefit. And yet, yes, the transcendence of God, but the imminence of God at the same time. Look again at verse 1. Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands, even the picture is of God taking David's hands, his fingers even. He's my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer. In fact, uh, verse 3, yes, this awesome God, but he cares for us. What are human beings that God cares for them? Mere mortals that he thinks of. We enter into the thoughts of the Most High God. So Stephen Hawking must be wrong. The amazing universe which we live in, well, maybe it hasn't been created for our benefit, but the God for whose benefit it does exist cares about us. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? It's almost like Monty Python or something, the imminence of God. Verse 7, reach down your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me. David knew about both the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. I wonder which one you lean towards. If you ha- Do you come down on one side more than the other? Is your God a little bit too small? Do you think of God as being, well, it's a, he's sort of a nice part of my life. You know, I sort of slot him in to my diary alongside the other commitments that I have, my book club and my Pilates group. Well, maybe we need to sing the Sunday club over there. They've been singing this song. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. But by contrast, actually, do we only think of God as completely out there and big and other and distant? Well, we need to see that this God actually cares for us, is mindful of us, trains our hands and our fingers, parts his heavens and comes down and descends to be with us, which is what we're going to celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? The time when actually God came to be with us. So that's the first paradox. Isn't that amazing? God is both transcendent and he's imminent. But secondly, we relate to him in prayer both individually and corporately altogether. So look at uh, verse 1 again. Praise be to the Lord, my rock. As we saw a second ago, verse 2, he's my loving God, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my... It's all all personal, isn't it? And then verse... uh, um, seven, the prayer is, reach down your hand from on high, deliver me, rescue me. And then the response, verse nine, I will sing a new song to you, my God, on my 10 string lyre, I will make music to you. And yet at the same time, do you see the way that it shifts from me and my to we and us in verse 11? So deliver me, verse 11, rescue me, but verse 12, then our sons will be like these well much, but our daughters, our barns will be filled, our sheep will increase, our oxen, our city will be safe, verse 14, 
Verse 15, not blessed is the person of whom this is true, but blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. You've got to have both halves. So sometimes I think people are a little bit disparaging about when people talk about having a personal relationship with God. Do you have a personal relationship with God? Some people, Christians, talk about having a personal... Well, of course, that's entirely biblical, isn't it? But David had a personal relationship with God. And yet, at the same time, there's a danger if they only have half the equation. You know, some people say they just, they just see religion as a very private thing. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just between me and God. And I hear very, very often people say things like, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. But... Um, but I don't believe you need to go to church to be a Christian. Well, I'm not sure whether actually the Bible agrees with that. I think it says that we need each other, don't we? We can't do it on our own. We must not only have one hour together on a Sunday morning, God wants us to have a personal relationship with him. So again, I wonder which you tend towards. You know, do you come down naturally on more on one side than the other? Do you know per- God personally, individually, for yourself? Do you pray to him, as David does here, confess to him, sing to him, make music to him, individually, personally, privately, throughout the week? But equally, are you committed to the people of God, to the church? Do you prioritise the people? Do you prioritise meeting together, serving together, experiencing the blessings of belonging to God's people together? There's a second paradox. So he's both transcendent and imminent, both individual and corporate. But thirdly, finally, we, we actually see that the answer to prayer, the blessings and the fullness of God's kingdom, come both now and not yet. Sometimes God answers prayer now. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. It's all in the present tense, isn't it? Praise be to the Lord my God who trains at the moment my hands, my fingers. He is my loving God right now in my fortress, my shield. But at the same time, there's a future anticipation to the answers of this prayer. In verse 12, then... Our sons will be like well-nurtured plants. Our daughters will be like pillars. Our barns will be filled. There will be no breachings of walls and leading into captivity and so on. Yeah, that's, that's a tension. That's a paradox. Because sometimes God answers prayer now, doesn't he? I wonder what David had in mind when he prayed. Verse 13. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. And I wonder, whatever he had in his mind, surely it must have paled into insignificance compared to the provisions which we have in our barn. I mean, can you imagine if King David went to Sainsbury's? He would, his mind would be blown. His head would probably explode at this barn full of provisions. And he's, God has provided for us, hasn't he? We give us this day our daily bread. Well, he has. And yet, at the same time, there's still a food bank, isn't there? There's still a need. There's still an anticipation that one day there will be no more hunger. We pray those amazing words. We long for the end of Revelations and that amazing bit. I love it when it says, there'll be no more sickness or mourning 
or crying or pain, the old order of things will have passed away. He will wipe every tear from their eye. And sometimes that happens now. Sometimes he does heal now. And sometimes he wipes away our tears now. But at the same time, actually, the answers to our prayers are both now and not yet. So there's three paradoxes. I wonder which one sticks out for you. Is there one of those that that kind of just strikes you? The amazing thing is that this prayer and these paradoxes, they point beyond King David who wrote this psalm. Remember, David was before Christ. They point all the way forward in the future to the one, the true king, God's king, who would come. This is a prayer of God's anointed king who gives victory to the king to deliver the people and bless the people. Well, there was going to be another king who would be the ultimate chosen king who would have a, a secure a much greater victory over the greatest enemy of all, death itself, bringing an even greater blessing for his people. How can God be both transcendent and imminent? Well, in Jesus Christ, look at verse 5. Part the heavens, Lord. Well, David could never have imagined what the answer to that was going to look like on the first Christmas when the heavens did part and Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, was born a human being. He came down to earth from heaven who was God and Lord of all. The, the one who made the universe was also the friend of sinners who was all about the one and the many. Yes, he taught the crowds and he established the church and he had a vast multitude wherever he went and yet he also sat next to the woman at the well. He cared about individuals. And of course, we anticipate his coming. He's here now, isn't he? We're going to say in a minute when we gather around the Lord's table, we're going to say, the Lord is here. His spirit is with us now and yet the fullness of his presence with us is still to come. So as we go out into our week, I wonder which of those three paradoxes one which strike you. Is there one of those where you've only got half the picture? Where you're only pushing one of the pedals? Well, maybe let's take a moment of quiet now to just turn uh, what we've heard into prayer.